I wanted to thank uh, Stephen Houseman for singing that great old Fanny Crosby hymn. I really like that, Blessed Assurance. If you don't know much about uh, the history of hymnology, that would be a good place to start, Fanny Crosby. A blind woman who was often penniless, and yet she wrote some of the most memorable hymns and, and lyrics to the hymns that we have in our hymn book. If you look there in uh, the pew, you'll find her name quite a bit. And in any other history of, of, of uh, hymn, hymnology, the study of, of hymns, I mean, I know we sing more modern songs from time to time, but Fanny Crosby was uh, very aware of, of God's hand upon her and some of the hymns that she uh, wrote are, are blessings and have been blessings to millions of Christians. And uh, uh, I just thank you for, for singing that one. That was one of my favorites. And I also want to thank uh, Jacob for preaching. You know, the Sunday that I was sick, <clears throat> I'm still getting over this stuff. And I uh, appreciate that. I, I got a chance to listen to him. Uh, the next Sunday, I didn't get to hear him, but that was the youth Sunday. And I thank him for his ministry uh, to the youth and uh, appreciate all that he did. Uh, we have been working on, uh, before that, a pre uh, the book of Philippians. So I invite you to turn there to Philippians chapter 1. And to be honest with you, we're just going to look at three verses. But I want to tell you something about these three verses. They contain a prayer of Paul. And I would argue probably uh, theologically this is one of the most important prayers that has ever been uh, offered or suggested for churches. Uh, and not just churches, but for individuals. Paul has been praising the Philippian church. They're doing a great job, and he's thankful for them, and, and they sent a gift to him to take care of him while he's in prison. And he's thankful for all that they're doing. Now, they're not without some problems, and this prayer may reflect some of the problems that they're having. But this is a prayer that is, should go down in, in history as the prayer for every conservative, every Bible-believing church that tries to serve Jesus Christ. And for every believer, if you're serious about your faith, if you know Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is a fantastic, but it is a tremendously deep and powerful prayer. And it, it requires us to go through it really word by word. Because this is not just some old, oh, gee, uh, you know, rub-dub-a-dub, thank God for the grub kind of prayer that just is flippant and said quickly with no meaning and no real intent or depth to it. This prayer is powerful when we understand the extent of what Paul is saying and the importance of what he's saying, not only for us as individual believers and how we relate to the world as believers, but also how we relate together as a church, uh, as fellow believers in what God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. And so this is very significant. So I'd like to share this with you this morning and try to look at it in depth to understand its power and its importance so we can make an, an application of this uh, to be faithful to the scriptures and exalt Jesus and then make application 
uh, for us as, as individuals who want to serve Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, sometimes churches and Christians tend to be a little bit shallow in their faith, and shallow in their minds, and uh, this prayer calls us to consider deeply how we can live for Christ uh, using the heart that we have from him to evaluate what we do and how we do it and the circumstances around God's purposes for who we are as believers. If you've often asked, well, what does God want me to do? This prayer will help us to determine that. So there are three things we're going to talk about the prayer. Um, first, and each verse does it, the first one is the prayer proper, uh, verse 9. So that's on the next slide right there, the prayer proper. So Paul gives us um, the prayer. It's not very long, but um, it's the prayer proper. And he starts off with the phrase, and I pray this. So this is his intent. I mean, he's telling them that he's excited about what they're doing and he's happy about what they're doing and he's praising them for what they're doing. But he comes to the point and says, this is what I pray for you. This is what my intent is for you. This is what I believe God's intent is for you. And I pray this. And then he goes on to say this. Um, I pray, and we're going to look at this each verse by verse since it's uh, shorter, we could do this. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. That your love will keep on growing in every kind of, of well, every, every knowledge, in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Um, the original text says that, Paul says, I pray that more and more this will abound, your knowledge and all judgment or discernment will abound. More and more, that's the Christian Standard Bible's way of saying that it will keep on growing. And that's one of the important things to understand is that this is not a one-time event. This is not just one time it's over with. And that's part of what we have to understand about our Christian faith because a lot of us think, oh, I got saved, that's it, it's over with, fine. I'm going to go to heaven, I know that. And that's all my faith is. It's just fire insurance to keep me from the other place. But the believer's walk is not a one-time thing. The believer's not walk is actually an ongoing experience. I like to say that when you receive Christ, you begin your eternal life. We always look at John 3.16 and we'll get eternal life. Yeah, we'll get to heaven. But I think when you moment you receive Christ in your heart is the exact moment you become a babe in Christ and you begin growing in your eternal life, in your walk, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, as babies grow, some slower, some faster, some get older, some don't ever seem to get older. <laughs> but we grow. And, and Paul recognizes this by saying, your walk with Christ has to grow more and more. It doesn't help to stagnate. 
It's not good if you go backwards, but you're supposed to be growing. None of us are perfect. We aren't all of a sudden the best Christians we could ever be. We have to learn to grow in Christ. And Paul recognizes this, that part of our faith is recognizing that we are growing in it. Every day is sweeter with Jesus than the day before because we grow deeper in him. We grow more aware of him. We, we grow more of, aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our, in our life. And we have this fellowship with him where we grow deeper and deeper as we worship, as we study, as we pray, as God opens a door for us to experience various many different types of things, we learn in those things how to be faithful Christians. So we shouldn't reject the experience we have in life, but learn how to be faithful in those experiences. Learn that that's part of our growth. In fact, the most deeply aware of us most maybe you could say spiritual wise of us ought to be the ones most aware of our humility that we're still growing. In fact, that's a principle actually of growing is knowing that you haven't finished growing. And there's things in your life that God is still wanting to work on and situations and experiences that he wants you to do. So it's very important for Paul to say that he wants them to keep on growing. The Christian life isn't something where you reach a, a, a plateau and you never grow. From now until God calls us home or until Jesus comes, we should recognize that we're growing. And that's true of a church as well, not just an individual believer, but you know what? We're growing together in fellowship. We're going together in, in serving. We're growing together in caring. We're growing together in loving. We're growing together in helping others. And you know what? That takes time and sometimes missteps, sometimes misunderstandings. And so the church goes through periods of great spiritual victories and sometimes it then struggles because that's the nature of the church. That's the nature of growing. And Paul writes to all the people there at Philippi that they're going to have this happen. This is why this becomes a tremendous, tremendous prayer for the church. Because it teaches us that no church ever arrives. And that's important for us to recognize because sometimes we think, well, if we just get this, this thing here, if we, just, if we just have this building, if we just have this program, if we just have this attitude, if we just have this, we'll be okay, we'll be there, we'll be fine. But that's not what a church does or is. Just as we are a living entity and we grow individually, so the church is a living entity and it grows communally. It grows, it grows as a congregation. What I think is interesting is the fact that you couldn't have chosen your parents. Right? I couldn't. Right? Neither of us had the chance. No one had the chance to grow to say, I want these parents. Well, what's interesting about the church is none of us actually have the right to decide who God puts here. You think about it. If we're called to go love everyone, that means to care enough to invite them into our community. And I know that there are people, theorists, church growth gurus, who say, go find the people that look like you, act like you, and think like you, and then join them together with you. And I'm saying, that's ridiculous, because that's not the church. 
The church is whoever God brings to us, whomever God leads us to, to share the gospel, whether they're great and wonderful and everybody we would respect, or whether they're the worst people in the community. It doesn't matter because God is the one who chooses, not us. You can't choose your parents. They were given to you. God gave you to those parents, and we can't choose who God wants to come to this church. And the reason why we should not ever endeavor to do that is because God has a purpose to, ser to save those he chooses and to help them grow in their faith and their knowledge. And guess what? We get to be part of that, helping. Of course, it may take a lot of patience, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of patience. But we can't go and say, no, we don't want you here because you don't look like us, act like this, or you don't, you don't, we, we just don't want that kind of riffraff in our church. And God is punishing us or will punish us with a dead, literally, spiritually, physically dead church if we ever decide to close the doors on the people that God wants us to come here. I think that's an exciting thing to understand is that not only do we grow as believers, but we have to grow as a church. And Paul is recognizing that when he says he prays that they will abound more and more. They will abound in these two things he's going to talk about. And these two things that he's going to talk about are seriously important for our Christian faith individually and for the church. And he says this by prefacing it with one Basic principle. These two things that he's praying for, that they will grow in, have to be founded upon and produced by one specific item. And that's the word love. He says here, now and you need to know this because this is something interesting here. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing, abounding more and more, in knowledge and all discernment. Okay, so we have to deal with love, knowledge, and discernment. The love is what has to be growing. And it has to be growing in two things, in knowledge and in discernment. So we have to unpack what that means. Well, the biggest and the most exciting thing to do is try to figure out what love is. You know, I, I kind of don't really love peanut butter, but I really love hot dogs and beans, you know. You might like something, but that's not the love that Paul's talking about here either. I actually love my wife, and I love my kids. But that's not the kind of love that Paul is talking about either because in Greek there's these four, four or five different words for love that can mean anything from a preference to a physical relationship with your spouse. But what Paul uses here is the word that's very well known from Jesus using it and its use in the New Testament. And maybe you've heard this word, it's called agape. Have you ever heard that word? Agape. And Paul doesn't say love, you know, like infatuation and affection and all that kind of stuff, brotherly love. He doesn't say that's what's supposed to grow. He says your agape is what's supposed to grow. Agape is a hard word to translate in a way 
because it means more than just our word love. You know, the world out there tries to romanticize the idea of love. They're trying to make it physical. They might, you know, people have, oh, I love this, I love that. But agape is a, uh, a quality of regard, a warm regard, an interest in another. It's, it's an esteem, an affection, a regard, a care for others. That is one focused one way. The world makes love in a, in, into a, a bilateral thing. I love you because of what you do for me or what I expect you to do. And so love has to be reciprocal in the world's attitude. And when you stop doing it, we fall out of love. See? So that's why the divorce rate is high and all of that kind of stuff or People have affairs and all these other kinds of things because they don't understand that God's love is an attitude, a quality that is focused from you, not self-centered, but it's other, otherly centered. In other words, agape means caring for someone else without concern for what they'll do for you. Caring for someone else by loving them unconditionally, helping other people for no thought of return or remuneration. And that's why it's often translated in the King James as charity. Charity isn't just doling out a little bit of stuff for somebody who's not as well off. It's caring for them, wanting the best for them, seeking to give them the grace and the love that God has given to us. See, one reason why churches can't love is they don't understand how much grace and love God has given to them. They haven't encountered a God who gave his self on the cross unconditionally for us to be able to pay the ransom for our sins. See, they don't understand that God's love is one way. He cares. He gave us Jesus because he cares. Paul said, this is love, not that we loved him, but, but Jesus loved us first and gave himself on the cross. And when we see him doing that on the cross, guess what? We're supposed to emulate that. We're supposed to do likewise, to go and love others unconditionally, with the kind of grace and love that God has shown to us, that even the Holy Spirit gives to us so that we can go and give it to others. Does that make sense? Paul says, I'm not praying for you that you have a big, wonderful church building. I'm not praying for you that you, have, you get all the best staff in the world and you've got the most pre uh, preeminent musicians and preachers and everybody loves to come to the show that you produce. He's not saying that that's the goal of the church. The goal of the church is to grow in the kind of love that Jesus showed us by dying on the cross. And to return that love to focus on others. For a church, together we do it. And we reach out into the community. For the believer, we do it as we relate to others. Paul says the greatest thing that your church can do, and this is my prayer for your church, you guys at Philippi, is that you will abound more and more in love 
And then he puts two stipulations on it, or two categories on it. He says, firstly, knowledge. And that doesn't mean he wants everybody to earn a PhD degree, PhD degree in some esoteric realm of knowledge. He's not telling you that. That's not the kind of knowledge he's talking about. He's talking about the knowledge that, first of all, is personal. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the Holy Spirit that we have personally. Do you know Jesus? Well, I've heard about Jesus, but do you know him? Paul wants us to know him. Paul wants us to know the Father. Paul wants us to develop our spiritual knowledge of the Holy Spirit's role and work in the church and in our heart and in our life. Have you stopped to ask lately, God, how can you teach me? to know what the Holy Spirit is guiding me. When does the Holy Spirit speak to me? How does the Holy Spirit lead me? Can you help me as I study the Word of God, as I pray to you, as I connect with you, to know what you would have me to do? This word knowledge isn't just a body of belief doctrines. There are churches, you know, today who say, all you have to do is believe the right doctrine. And the right doctrine is usually what some old guy who lived a long time ago, dead now, who wrote it all down. And if you believe it, that's it. You don't have to do anything. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. This knowledge, he means, is an ongoing relationship with our Savior, with God. God cares about us, and he cares to be part of our lives. And Paul is saying, you need to grow in this knowledge. The knowledge of all things that belong to God. The ethical knowledge that, that helps us to grow. The biblical, one, one scholar said the biblical sense, it's, this knowledge is the biblical sense of knowing God in an intimacy made possible through his self-disclosure and received by faith. In other words, God wants to be part of our lives intimately and we receive that by our faith. A better knowledge of God and his ways promotes greater harmony within the fellowship. It's true. Service and work, given the, uh, the uh, Philippians, it gives the Philippians a clearer understanding of their, of their mutual relationships as fellow believers. In other words, as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we grow together as believers. And we share the joy of knowing Him. We share the excitement of, of serving such an awesome God and a wonderful Savior. And the church becomes essential and it becomes, it, it becomes appropriate and relevant to the world because it's sharing that knowledge with each other and, and we go and take it to the world. And the world doesn't need, um, well, shucks, doesn't need political parties and doctrines and ideas. and It needs Jesus. And we share Jesus with them. And then they come to know Jesus. And when we share together as believers in faith and we begin to understand the Bible and the biblical worldview and how God has loved us enough to care for us, to create us in his own image. And then after we sinned against him to give Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. This is the, the knowledge that he's talking about here. It's biblical knowledge. It's intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, I guess if I found, um, and there are people who do this, if I found a penny, there's a penny, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but it's like worth a million dollars. If I happened to find that penny, I would not let that penny out of my sight. I'd have it, I'd hold on to it, I'd put my fingers on it, I'd gaze upon it, I'd look at it. 
Well, we have something that's far more worth than that. It's our walk with Jesus Christ, and it ought to be a central part of what we do and how we serve him. Paul prays that they will have, they will grow, their love will grow in knowledge. Their agape will grow in the knowledge uh, and, in this, and, and in every kind of discernment, or literally all discernment. This word discernment is also important. It's sometimes translated judgment. It doesn't mean, though, what a judge does when, you know, he gives us the verdict. It means how you make decisions. It's often translated as discernment, uh, depth of insight. Um, it's a very important word, your perception. Actually, it has two parts to it. It means the ability to, to or capacity to understand. And then secondly, I'm sorry, it's the capability of being uh, oh, let me get this right here. I can't read it. Okay. Um, the capability of being um, affected by external things. In other words, discernment means that you just are, you're not clueless. You understand that things are going on. Okay. Some people are clueless, but you understand things. All of a sudden you get the ability to say, yep, I perceive this. It's a perception or a sensation. And then secondly, is the capacity to understand from that in order to make a decision. So it's like you see things going on and then you're able to make the decision. And discernment is being able to know the value of things that matter for time and eternity. Discernment is the ability to make judgments and decisions based upon that knowledge of God and the relationship that we have with him. Discernment is to be able to recognize in the community and in the world the things that are counterfeit spiritually, that are fake, and to be able to turn away from those and hold on to the things that matter for time and eternity. Discernment is being able to understand and perceive what really is what we should choose to do and be as Christians. And this is what Paul is praying for, that their agape will grow more and more, as he says it here, in this knowledge, this intimacy, and in this discernment. See, agape has to have those two things. To be someone who exercises love, you have to have first a knowledge of where that love comes from. And that love comes from God, so you need to know that it comes from there. You don't search for it in other places, and that's the problem with sin. Sin wants us to search for this knowledge, this, this intimacy in all kinds of other places that are fake, that cannot give us what God gives us in his love for us. And then discernment is once we seek it in God, we're able to exercise it to be able to say, here is how I'm showing this love to these people who desperately need love, but also who are able, we're able to say, this is wrong, and I'm not going to do this. But I'm going to stand firm for my faith and my understanding of the biblical worldview. So Paul is telling them in Philippi, where they live, to be the kind of church, because it is connected to God, and because it begins to show this agape love, they're able to show the intimate knowledge of a God who loved them and to be able to discern in their lives and the lives around them 
the things that matter for time and eternity and are the gospel as they present those things and those reasons to be effective in their lives. So Paul says to the church, you got to get this relationship with God down so that you can share that with others and you can learn how to do that in your world because Satan's greatest, greatest ploy is to pull the wool over our eyes, to act like things are not so bad or important when ultimately his goal is to lie and to, and to basically cheat us out of our, if we know Christ as our Lord and Savior, out of a victorious, growing Christian life. That's, he, he probably, once you became a Christian, isn't too worried all about it after that because he can't take you away from Christ, you know? But what he can do is he can make you think that's not very important and never to exercise the precious gift that Jesus gives us in eternal life to be connected to God and then to live in such a way that we share this with others. It grows the more we share it with others. It deepens us the more we share it with others. Well, I know that's, that's a big deal, but that's the prayer proper. The second thing is that we have to understand the purpose of the prayer, verse 10. The purpose of the prayer is, found, is, is expressed to us in verse 10 because Paul then says, you know, you got to do this for a purpose. It just isn't doing nothing for us or nothing for you or nothing for the church. You just don't do this willy-nilly as if it doesn't really make a difference. Um, some people said that, that, I don't know, you probably watched Seinfeld. It was a big TV show years ago. And at the end of the show or something, I think uh, they asked the guy, Seinfeld, who was the main character, the purpose of the whole uh, the show, and I think he said it didn't have a purpose. That was the point of the show. It, it didn't matter. There's nothing to it. It didn't have a purpose. There was no great, great deep philosophical idea behind it or, or, or theological idea or monetary or economical. It just, it just had no purpose. Well, our faith has to have a purpose. We have to have something or why do this? Why spend our time here and listen to me rant and rave for a little bit longer than what I am doing? But, and, and come, why do it? You know, if this is entertainment, shoot, I'm not an entertainer. I can't do stand-up comedy. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't even do anything. So why are you here? You're here because we're together doing something that matters for time and eternity. And Paul wants us to understand why he's praying this so that they'll understand what they're supposed to do. So he says this, in verse 10, and there's three things that he says here that uh, we want to understand. So he says in verse 10, I pray all of this, verse 10, so that you, and that's an important thing. He says, so that, and then he has you, and that's, that's a key, uh, what we call it, a uh, preposition in the Greek. You know, all of a sudden he turns and says, this is the reason why I pray for this so that you may approve the things that are superior. That you may approve what is best in the NIV. You may approve the things that are excellent in the old King James. So, you know, I, I, the other day I'm... Uh, I'm taking care of some rabbits, you know. 
And uh, I wanted to, I, I want to give them some hay and I don't want it to fall through the cracks and waste it, you know. So I get on the internet, give me the best rabbit hay feeder. And all these things come up. 10 best rabbit feeders, 10 best rabbit hay feeders, 10 best do-it-yourself rabbit feeders. And so I spend my time looking through there to find the best. And that's natural and normal for us as Christians. If we spend our hard-earned money, we want to spend it on the best. If we do things in our lives, we want to do them in the best way. We don't want to do them in the, in the worst way. Of course, a lot of us wind up doing that about life, especially spiritual things. We wind up doing things in the worst way possible because we let ourselves get involved and we're so self-centered. But the point is, Paul wants them, look at this, to gain the knowledge in their love, to gain the knowledge of Jesus and the sense of discernment so they can always pick the best stuff out. Paul says that's the way the church grows. The best practices, the best understanding, the best cause of action, the best directions, the best plans don't come from some guru out there. They come from God. They come from Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us to be the church that we need to be. And that's why he's praying this so they can pick out the best things. This is the discernment in order that they may know what is best. And then he says... My prayer is so that you will not only be able to prove those things that are best, but you may be pure. You may be pure, sincere. You do things for the right reasons. You do things for the honest reasons. You do things openly. You do things with the right motives. And the church learns to be, fellowship of our believers, we learn to be picking out the best things in order that they make us pure, that they help us be sincere about our faith. We don't do this with a hidden motive. Well, there are people that do that all the time in churches. I'll tell you, there's a TV evangelist who's doing it so he can get a new jet to fly around the country, right? Well, you'd say his motives aren't so pure. He's not really sincere about this. Well, we're not out here to make a great stink about ourselves and put up there in neon lights. This is our, who we are. We're, we're there to put Jesus up there. We're there to be sincere about our motives, to love him and to help others know him and meet their needs and help them to know Jesus and come to him. And Paul says, I want to tell you the purpose of doing this prayer, of seeking to let your love grow, abound and abound in the knowledge of God, in the discernment about what he wants us to do, in order that not only can we pick the best things, but we can also be this sincere in that. Without, without you know, tricking people or lying people. And then he says, because you do this, because you have been pure and sincere in finding the deep knowledge and intimacy with Jesus, with God. And you have done this in order to discern what actions we need to do. Not only are, are you basically able to pick out the best things and you're sincere in your motives, 
But when it comes down to the day of judgment, you'll be found blameless. And that's what he says. He says that you may be pure and blameless, blameless in the day of Christ. Blameless. Nobody can impugn to you wrong motives. Nobody can claim you didn't do it for the right reasons. But when you stand before Jesus Christ, you can say, Lord, I did it for you. And you do it for him by giving yourself to him. Not by thinking your plans and strategies and ideas are better than his. But that you've done it with him. And that's why he's saying this is the purpose of the prayer. The purpose of the prayer is to allow God to move in our lives in a great and mighty way. So that we will have the best things, the things that honor God, that he wants us to do. That we will be sincere and that we'll be blameless when God calls us to stand before him. When we go to that judgment day, Jesus will say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's what we want to hear from him. And we can only do that not because we figure out what to do on our own self. We do it with our strategy. We do it with our own self-centeredness. We do it with our own motives. No, we do it when we grow in love, in knowledge and discernment and grow in that deep insight. Our desire and our goal ought to be a deep insight in our faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on and the third point is that there is a practical purpose or practical product of the prayer in verse 11. In other words, if you do this and you're found sincere, you're able to get the best things and you're blameless in the day of Christ, then he says, you will be filled, verse 11, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of praise and God. Now there's three things in this as well. Number one is the result of all of this, the practical product is righteousness. And it's the fruit of righteousness. It doesn't mean that you walk around saying, hey, how good am I? I'm really righteous. I like the righteous brothers. You know, I tell my Hebrew students that Neil Sadaka, you ever heard of him? His last name Sadaka means righteousness in Hebrew. He's Jewish and Sadaka, Sadaka is the Hebrew word for righteous. But he's not as righteous as the righteous brothers. Because he did the bubblegum pop but I like the unchained melody and, and all of that. This is silly, isn't it? But the point of it is, is that we're supposed to grow not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of our walk with God. And that righteousness will never sit. It is not something that you just get filled with and it just stays there. You get filled with it and it begins to overflow to others. And their church was supposed to be filled with the fruit of righteousness because the fruit of righteousness is growing in God's love, in the knowledge of his intimacy, and in the discernment of what he wants us to do. And when we do that, that righteousness just starts to change us, put us on the right path. Righteousness is not a, an, an attitude or a quality we obtain. It's a quality of something we do. It means a right relationship with God. And when we have that right relationship with God, it begins to overflow so other people see and hear about our Savior 
and they come to know him. And the whole purpose of the church is to keep producing that kind of righteousness. Not people who have halos on their head and, and float along the ground two inches up above, but people who care to take the love of Christ to others and help them to understand their needs. And that's what the church is supposed to do. It's supposed to be so outwardly centered that it's constantly trying to share Christ with others. As they come together inwardly, they learn to love each other and to grow in the fellowship, the, the sharing together in the work. That's what fellowship means. It doesn't just mean potluck suppers. It means sharing together in the work. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to do. If you do this, the result is going to be the fruit of righteousness that God gives you and it will fill you and overflow. This fruit of righteousness has an origin. And he says there is an agency by which it comes by. It doesn't come by ourselves. It doesn't come by some guru. It doesn't come by some adherence to a certain idea or a certain way. It comes by and through who? It says it right there. Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings the righteousness to us. That's why we hold on to him. That's why Paul said you need to, your love needs to abound in knowledge, your intimate knowledge of Christ. Christ in your life, Christ in you, Jesus, as you hold on to him, as you walk with him, as you seek to know what he would have you to do, that intimacy is what produces righteousness because it comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through the pastor. It doesn't come through the deacons. It doesn't come through some other theological guru or some popular person in the world. It always amazes me that the world seems that if you want opinion about something, you go find some celebrity and ask him their opinion. Well, that celebrity is not an expert because they're a celebrity. In fact, some of their answers are quite ridiculous and, and insane. But the point is that's the way the world thinks, you know, we get uh, answers. But our answers need to come through Christ Jesus. I like that word. He says literally through Christ Jesus, that the fruit of righteousness, you are being filled with it that comes through Jesus Christ. We don't serve any other God. We serve Jesus. And then he tells us that the purpose of all of that in the last phrase is that it's to the glory and praise of God. When we serve Jesus Christ, we give praise and glory to God. To God be the glory we sing, right? Well, to God be the glory comes when we do things through Jesus Christ. When we do things to, to grow our love, our agape, for each other and for the world, the people of the world who need to know Christ. When God gives us the ability to through that, to discern what matters for time and eternity. And all of a sudden, we're able to see that Paul is doing this, is telling us this because it's going to help us have the best things and to be sincere and to be blameless so that the world will hear of God's glory through Jesus Christ. And because God is going to pour into us his righteousness, our right relationship with him is going to help other people come to know our Savior and come to know Jesus Christ. I think, folks, this is a tremendous prayer. It is so much to think about and so much there. Paul wants the church at Philippi to be a glorious church. He wants them to be able to help other people. 
He wants them to make a difference in their community. He wants them to be able to stand faithful and true and honest and sincere for the best thing of all, which is to know Christ and to be able to be blameless when God calls them home to stand in the judgment for him. I think it's really important for us to understand that this means that we are called to a deeper Christian walk that we are called to learn spiritual perception, that we're called to understand that what we do to be a glorious church has a, a, an impact on how God gets glory in the world. Well, you say God is God. He can do anything he wants to do. He can, he can make earthquakes. He can show up. He can do all that kind of stuff. But you know what? God has chosen to gain glory through the praise of his people and through their actions and deeds. And Paul knows that the church at Philippi will be different because they want their love, the true love that God gives us, the agape love, to grow and grow and grow. Our church will be what God wants it to be and will be blessed by God. And we will have the ability to see all kinds of great and marvelous things that God will do because God will fill us with his righteousness when we allow Jesus Christ to be our Savior, unquestionably, unconditionally our Savior and our Lord. And that will make a difference. I think that's Paul's prayer for the church. I would like to say it's a prayer for us and it's a prayer for our church. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I want you to come to know this guy. I want you to know to come this Savior. I don't mean to be trite and call him a guy, but this is our Savior and our Lord. I'd like you to come to know him. I'd like you to come and ask him to be your Savior and Lord and to stand up and serve him. If you're looking for a church home, then I challenge you to consider uh, Providence Baptist as we join together with the purpose of being a glorious church. Not because we make it glorious, but God is able to make it glorious because we yield our hearts to him in every way. And we make this an essential church because it becomes that which helps us to grow and walk and learn and navigate life in such a way that through Jesus Christ, God gets the glory. And we encourage you to come and be part of that church. If you are a member of the church and God is calling you to some type of Christian service, then respond to him, follow him. But whatever it may be God calling us to do, let us be faithful, even if it's just to rededicate our life today, saying, you know, Jesus, I want that agape that comes from knowing you and that comes that gives me discernment and ability in life, not just for my own personal reasons, but so I can glorify you. I want more than anything else people to know it comes from you, through you, and it makes glory to God because of you, Jesus. And we rededicate our life in that way. We're going to have a hymn number 320, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus as the musicians come to lead us.